So welcome everyone to the latest edition of the Visions and Tones podcast. Today I'm talking to a great scholar, a friend, a colleague uh, who is based in South Africa. He's an expert in uh, academic dishonesty and whistleblowing, but he'll tell us a little bit more about himself. Um, and his name is Dr. Um, um Ugi, welcome to the Visions and Tones podcast. Thank you, Tony, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited uh, to be part of this uh, podcast, Visions and Turns. Yeah. And uh, thank you. I was very excited when you sent me the invite. Right. I'm I'm very excited to be chatting with you. I've been trying to find someone I can talk to in terms of academic dishonesty, but much more, I wanted to broaden it further to speak more about um, the death of the academy, which hopefully maybe we'll touch a little bit about some few questions here in this in this. Um, engagement but maybe before we start can you can you tell us who is Ugi and and what are you doing now you just completed your PhD but what was it about and what are you currently working on okay so I completed my PhD uh, last year and, and it was uh, the uh, degree was awarded to me early this year but I've been appointed from the beginning of this year as a postdoctoral research fellow at UJ at the Department of Sociology. And I'm conducting research on whistleblowers and whistleblowers' experiences in the face of uh, inadequate legislative protection. Uh, since South African law or legislation that's intended to protect whistleblowers is, is inadequate. And in the face of this inadequate protection, I'm looking at or examining different types of support structures that can be implemented to support whistleblowers, aside from their experiences of retaliation, aside from their experiences of being surrounded by silent peers. And uh, yeah, I'm in the process of just uh, publishing work uh, relating to that. And I'm also doing some uh, teaching as and when. Uh, I've recently just come out of teaching a postgraduate course on research methodology at the College of Business and Economics at the University of Johannesburg and also supervising uh, two postgraduate students that are actually conducting research on whistleblowers. Oh. One of them is actually conducting was uh, yeah. One of them is actually conducting research on academic dishonesty and whistleblowing. Right, and your Similarly your master's when I did, when I your master's level was, was on, actually on on academic dishonesty, and you moved over to yeah. to, to whistleblowing on your PhD. Why 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 the move? What inspired you to move from academic dishonesty to now more political whistleblowing? So my master's was on on blowing the whistle on academic dishonesty. Oh right, um, and uh, you know something that fascinated me was was academic dishonesty. You know, having worked at, at the university, uh, both you and I had witnessed that. You know, yeah. it, was, it was common. There was an occurrence of academic dishonesty, and I, and I saw uh, whistleblowing as a mechanism to curb it, and that's what the masters dealt with. And I was able to produce a peer-reviewed article from that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and. Um, at about that time, when I had finished my master's, I took a time, a year off to think about what sort of topic I'll engage with for my PhD. And this whole thing about state capture popped up. So it was all over media. Yeah. And I said, wow, um, it's coming to the fore and it's coming to the fore because of whistleblowers. And I said, it's right in my domain. You know, I've written on whistleblowing, but I haven't written on it on this really macro perspective. And um, that's where I decided to, to engage with whistleblowing and how it brought state capture to the fore and how these whistleblowers had no protection from the state and were reliant on civil society for support. 
we'll touch on well, whistleblowing a little later. Maybe we'll, let's start from you know academic dishonesty. What what exactly what aspect of of, of academic dishonesty were you looking at, and um, were you only focused on the context of students, or also on the context of how academics themselves can be complicit to academic dishonesty? So I was actually focusing only on uh, students, um, and it's interesting, you know. It, Maybe sometime in the future I'll come back and I'll revisit as how academics are complicit in academic dishonesty. But rather, I was just looking at how, um, in in what sort of scenarios or what sort of contexts, or what what, what factors would lead whistleblower, uh, what factors would lead uh, students to exposing peers, that is disclosing on peers that are committing academic dishonesty. And what I looked at there was, uh, it was actually a sample of undergraduate. Uh, students so it wasn't even postgraduate students and what was interesting for me was to, to initially just understand if they understood what academic dishonesty was because that's one of the problems that we face um, because what can we understand academic dishonesty as I mean that's any sort of behavior that contravenes a legitimate submission for assessment mm-hmm. and those behaviors can entail uh, test and exam cheating so bringing notes into an exam or even talking to peers during an exam. It could entail uh, plagiarization, cobbling together an assignment of the internet, not giving uh, authors uh, their due citations, or using previously submitted uh, essays from or assignments from previous years or previous, you know, even semesters. Um, What other behaviors could constitute academic dishonesty? Working together uh, in groups or in assignments or assessments that are intended for individual submission. And the problem is that sometimes students don't know that this is a contravention. Okay. Or at least they will tell you that they don't know. Hmm. So if they say they don't know, what would be the best way to deal with it in a context where they are, they are given you know, a policy, they have to prepare you know, to come to class, they should know all those things. And obviously they've got uh, tutors, to, uh, uh, to talk, uh, tutors who can sort of teach them about, you know, what dishonesty is and whatnot. So, because when I was looking at some of the works on academic dishonesty, for instance, you'll find that in America, sometimes a particular error, um, uh, which is considered a legitimate error, wouldn't sort of be framed within the scope of academic dishonesty. But to what extent can we come and say something is a particular legitimate error in the context where someone might have been given or someone Mm. is given material to prepare for coming to class and so on and so forth? So how do we let me think about the first the first question is is that um um what you're saying is how, how do we then sanction this wrongdoing behavior if they say that they weren't aware of the mm-hmm. of the so so I suppose that's what universities are trying to do so in, in they're taking a more proactive approach versus a reactive approach in that they I mean think about our our uh 10 years as students at, at the University of Johannesburg is that from the very first day you're bombarded with what plagiarism is, what academic dishonesty is, uh, what the penalties for such actions are, behaviors are. And I mean, I think that's the basis of an academic institution is that aside from educating or giving you the necessary tools or utilities that you need post studies is that it needs to inculcate values of uh, ethics and principles within an individual. Mm-hmm. 
and I think that's one of really the one of the tenets of, of an institution. So I think that that's also maybe an excuse. I, I don't have any data to support that, yeah. but I believe that that's an excuse by students to say, you know, I didn't understand what the policy was, because if you copy something or paste something, a paragraph of the internet right into your your own assignment, I mean, um, I think that's pretty straightforward that you, you know, that's it's dishonest yeah. behavior. I mean, I like the point of saying perhaps it's an excuse because I think it sort of marries my my second question. Uh, I mean, we might not be speaking using data, but we know, I mean, we've been working with students for a number of years and we know that sometimes this is an excuse. I don't need to to, to, to bring data to prove that this is an excuse. But in terms of how it marries the second question, I guess, is to say, so so what would be the best way to sort of ensure that we know how to 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 deal with someone who might say I wasn't aware, right? Um, compared to something which might be a legitimate error, can we ride on the fact that something is a legitimate error, um, even though we know that? But you've had enough time and enough chance to look through policy. I suppose that also, uh, I mean. I suppose that resides on the severity of that of the transgression, right? Yeah. So if it's a legitimate error on on inadequately citing, let's say you you're you're using citations but you're not doing it adequately. Um, for example, you're not including if, if it's a Harvard method and you need to include page numbers, you fail to do that. It could the onus there could lie with the responsible lecturer to say, okay, fine, I understand you're not completely certain about. Uh, referencing, I think you need to go consult the writing center, for example. Mm -hmm. But when a student brings an assignment that's um, or submits an assignment that's entirely plagiarized and coupled, uh, you know, gotten off the internet or, or previously submitted assignment, I mean, I think we we have to use our own intuition there to discern um, because the, pro the the policies are in place, the policies and the procedures are in place. The university gives that. I mean, it's it's if you go on our uh, intraweb with the blackboard yeah. um, you link um, it's you can access the policies as and when necessary yeah and I think we're bombarded with those policies on a regular basis mm -hmm. and above and beyond that we have the tool of you know you have turned it in now you can go and submit your own assignment to turn it in uh, and you can see what your similarity index is and I think that you know it's it's Probably we have to discern between genuine errors, you know, use our own intuition to discern between genuine errors and uh, genuine uh, fraudulent behavior, you know, wrongdoing yeah. behavior, yeah. corrupt behavior. And of course, then when you've got the more extreme cases, such as uh, exam cheating, I mean, that's not an error. You know, if you're bringing notes into an exam or if you're using, which is common, I think we've both faced that uh, students bring notes on their cell phone. And then, I mean, that's pure academic dishonesty. And then there's, there's an entire process or protocol. I don't know how it is at the uh, uh, university that you're at, at Newcastle, um, but at UJ, there's, once you've caught a student cheating, once you're the individual has caught a student cheating, it then is no longer in your hands. You have to, you have to report that because yeah. then it's, it's your own ethical um, uh, obligation to report that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And failure to do that means that you're then not complying with your own uh, role prescriptions. Is that part of the way in which you can say some academics can be complicit in in terms of uh, you know academic dishonesty if they don't report students that they they know that this one plagiarized? Yeah, that's definitely being complicit. Yeah, I and mean, I wouldn't be able to see myself not reporting that. 
Right. Yeah. It, in 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 the work that you've been looking at, were you also considering um, fraudulent doctors' notes, and where would you frame aspects of fraudulent doctors' notes? Is it still part of academic dishonesty, or by academic dishonesty, you're only referring to something that has to do with giving grades to students? Sure, that's that's a very interesting question. I actually didn't consider um, fraudulent doctor's notes as part of academic dishonesty uh, because I suppose it wasn't in assessment. Mm-hmm. But it does create the opportunity for deferred assessment where a student might not have prepared. I mean, it's still fraud. Yeah. It's still corrupt behavior. Uh, and now that you've, as you've explained it, I feel that maybe the, 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 the scope of what constitutes academic dishonesty should actually include, um, I, I suppose by some definition it does, uh, because if we think that it's any sort of behavior that contravenes uh, a legitimate submission for assessment, then fraudulent doctor's notes should fall within that domain. So that's something that actually needs to be explored. Right. I mean, those are abundant. Those are abundant at, I mean, you can see a fraudulent doctor's note from, I mean, there's a way to actually check it on. You can go on the website and see registered um, health prof- professionals that have got that yeah. number. It used to be a case, but I know um, there's a certain institution that I also work with here now, um, uh, which I'm not going to call names. And there was a time where they used to sort of do a lot of uh, chase for some of the students, but um. I heard somewhere uh, and somebody making a statement that we do not have the resources to do that anymore because, um, you know, at, at some point there was a secretary who used to even try to call these doctors to say, have you seen this student? Uh, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. because now you find that if, if if an institution has a higher intake of students, therefore you, you run out, out of resources to do any chase in case you come across maybe 200 students who submit doctor's notes, that's going to cost the institution also a lot of money, you know. So from your work, uh, Dr. Ugi, what are the reasons for students to 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 engage in academic dishonesty? There's, there's a number of reasons. So there's, there's five I would like to point to directly, which I, f- I feel are very uh, prevalent ones. Um, first, would be that of pressures to succeed. So these pressures can come from relatives, parents, siblings, um, extended family, or it could come from peer pressure. You might see that your peers are doing better than you are. Uh, you might see that it's a strong group of, of students and you're one of the underperforming students. Related to that, but not the same as peer pressures would, would be that of a drive to achieve better, attain better marks. Uh, which are is is related to to pressures to succeed, but we could also you know understand it separately. Uh, it could be better marks in the sense of uh, from moving from a fail to a pass, or moving from a a, a, a non distinction to a distinction mark. Mm-hmm. And then of course the third, uh, which relates again to pressures to succeed, is a fear of failure because we've really installed a fear of, fear of failure. Is that uh, not being able to complete university, you you you'll think that, or the student might think that that they then cannot be employed after, or you know, after dropping out of the course. So I suppose um, those are those are creo, uh, those are I think critical elements. Another very important element is that of laziness. Okay, and I wouldn't really relate it to uh, 
um, pressures to succeed. So laziness stems from just being students, right? <laughs> um, uh, in that uh, students sometimes, or a large proportion of students, don't take the time to adequately prepare uh, throughout the semester or the term. And I, I know from from our perspective here at the University of Johannesburg, they're given ample time, you know, with assessment opportunities. We release um, the, for, I'll give you just a, a very uh, practical example is that uh, I started lecturing in this semester in March. In February, uh, mid to late February, I had already um, announced the essay topic or the assignment, the main assignment topic. And that submission was only due at the end of May. And it's a matter of students, they're not dealing with that throughout the course. And they, now you have to complete a 40-page assignment in two weeks, three weeks. And that's, um, and that's you know, laziness, you know, not preparing adequately, not walking into an exam adequately prepared and saying, listen, I can take in some notes and maybe that can help me out. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth point I would have to say is that of not understanding policy, right. um, not understanding what constitutes I suppose it's, it's it's a lot clearer with exam and test cheating, but with things like plagiarism or working on tasks that are in the, uh, intended with peers that are intended for individual submission, it's just a lack of clarity. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, you could tell a student, now you can't work on an assignment with your colleagues and they will be surprised. Um, and I can understand that confusion, but, you know, again, I think that the onus there needs to lie with the institution to communicate that strongly, to take a proactive approach and say, um, this is off bounds. Right. And I think it's something that needs to be emphasized throughout the course through whoever's taking or, or, or delivering the course. They need to emphasize that throughout. And I'm, I'm aware that the paper that we are talking about now use sort of a quantitative method as opposed to a qualitative method. And obviously, just because I know you've also engaged a um, great body of work on academic dishonesty while you're actually working on whistleblowing. I might sort of chip in a couple of few questions and it's not a matter of maybe do you have the data or not, but I'd love to sort of hear your expert advice also in the way you've assessed the literature, brother. Because I'm thinking when I'm asking you now, um, I'd, I'd love to hear in terms of pressure to succeed in the way in which it might be linked also with economics, so to say, money, so to say. Um, because for some, it's not just pressure to succeed, but it might also be, you know, or laziness to prepare on time, but it might be a certain anxiety. People might prepare, but you find that then close to deadlines and anxiety kicks in and some start to think about a whole lot of things. And one of the things that they think about is, you know, money, where would I get money to pay for this course? And I guess what I'm also thinking with this particular question, Dr. Ugi, is the fact that, and maybe you can tell me whether your data included international students, especially those who have to pay a lot of money compared to domestic students on most cases. And in some institutions, I know that failing a case, you don't have, failing a module, you might not get a special exam. In some institutions, for instance, here in Australia, there's some universities that if you fail a unit or a module, uh, you might not even get access into supplementary exam. You have to repeat it, but to repeat it means another money on top of it. Um, any Anything 
around what I've said so far. Two things, one international students, another one links to to money economics. So if we if we uh, compare the 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 predicament that South African universities are faced with versus inter- let's say international students, uh, I looked at a study for uh, for this paper from Scotland. It was um, Rennie, uh, Rennie and Rudland, and Rennie also did some work with Crosby as well. Um, and they uh, in the UK and in other st- uh, countries such as the States, they are faced with ext- uh, with concerning numbers of academic dishonesty, which is indicative to me that there are pressures. I wouldn't know the economic aspect in those states, but it it, it points me to the direction that there's a reason for this uh, dishonesty being committed. I think that South Africa's case is very uh, a very particular one. Why? Because we have so many first-generation university students. Yeah. Uh, people who yeah, they have no grounding or understanding of of what it entails. So I think maybe the task is quite mammoth. The transition from high schools in South Africa, and I think that's also a point we could discuss briefly is high schools. But I think the 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 point of transition from high schools to universities in South Africa is immense, where complete autonomy kicks in, mm-hmm. and a lack of uh, an uh, uh, an inability to adequately manage then one's time funds. Etc. And without this this uh, presence of 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 um, parents or guardians, uh, you know, one might succumb to these uh, you know, faulty scenarios. Um, I think that in South Africa, regarding the funds, I think that is an obvious crisis. Uh, we understand that there are uh, institutions that that. That fund you in South Africa, such as NASFAS, if you're a good academic performer, NRF. Um, and those obviously fall away should you fail, like you said. Yeah. So they're fa- face, you know, these students are then face being first generation students having to then pay from where, from what budget. And I think that those are real pressures. And it's something that we um that we have to, you know, you know what? Maybe you could maybe we could uh develop coping mechanisms for that by taking an even further or broader proactive approach. So coaching, time management, uh, fund management for these students. I don't know if that even exists for South African students, mm-hmm. um, management for, for stipends. It's a lot of money. Some of these stipends are quite a bit. You can live off some of these stipends. Um, yeah, but some of the money in can- the context of South Africa might also be too complex with it, right? Because mm. especially – you spoke about some of the students being first generation university attendees. It's at the, it's at the same time, the stipends that you're talking about, um, some students who speak a lot about black techs would tell you that some of the money that they, they get for stipend, they're actually even sending it back home to help back home. Um, it's not just money that they can use for themselves, but again, comes in the pressure that you also alluded on earlier where some might want to look well off, might want to look better like other students. And then you find that, yes, the aspect of financial management, you know, coaching might be needed to say some students might be eating good, but you don't have to look exactly like them in order for you to succeed in class. It might be something completely different. Uh, um, it's interesting because uh, I saw that you recently had a uh, a podcast on black tax. 
Ah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, which is which is an alarming phenomenon. I don't know. Is it present? Is it present the world over? Or is it something very endemic to South Africa? Um, I've heard a lot of African countries here and there trying to speak about black tax and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I've heard a lot of I've heard a couple of African Americans um, also writing about black tax. There's a particular guy who did a talk on Google Chats. I, for- I forgot his name. I'll send it over but his work was amazing because what i loved was also the way in which he linked black text towards um he's got a link of black text with mental health issues of trauma and so on and so forth which many people do not sort of uh discuss so he tried to sort of pull through the psychological and sociological aspect to have them have a conversation with one another but obviously black text in most other african countries does not in any way look similar to black text in the context of South Africa. Mm. I mean, South Africa, we almost like about 30 years into democracy. Um, mm. And 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 obviously then, you know, conversations about racism, systemic, you know, um, institutional racism would be much more um, highly contested in South Africa compared to places like Ghana, which gained its independence within 1958 and so on and so forth. Even though people might say still the absence of direct administration of colonial structures still exists within policy, but it's a complete different case compared to, you know, other places where we have seen coloniality, you know, settler coloniality and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Well, uh, undeniably the remnants of, of apartheid still remain. The fault mm-hmm. lines are still there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. of course it's one of the root causes of black tax, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm t- talking from a very lay perspective, and I can understand that. I'm just trying to relate it to academic dishonesty, and I can uh, understand why uh, students would be compelled to have to uh, commit wrongdoing, such as academic dishonesty, in order to to maintain those stipends. I mean, some of these families are living off student stipends. Right. What's what is the SASA? What is the SASA grant now? Thousand six hundred rand. Uh, I mean, you cannot do anything. It's just over a thousand six hundred. I don't think you can do anything with yeah. the grant in South Africa. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I mean, you could get stipends up to twenty thousand rand monthly mm-hmm. in South Africa. I mean, with with what uh, you're saying now, Doctor, what I like is the fact that it it keep it you know you keep on drawing me closer to rethinking the idea of academic dishonesty to say. And now, when we think of academic dishonesty in the context of finances and thinking of how people actually apply for the National Financial Student Aid Scheme, uh, which is shortened with NESFAS, right? Um, at least now I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that the NESFAS office is trying to sort of work with uh, other institutions such as Home Affairs, uh, SARS, um, I cannot remember the third one, to sort of check the legitimacy of information that students give to them, especially students who come and claim that my parents are not working, therefore I should be given uh, uh, a financial aid scheme. I should be given the funds. And I'm thinking as to whether, to what extent would you say all those should also filter in within the broader conceptualization of, you know, what academic dishonesty is. And with that at hand, to what extent should our responses be in terms of trying to be strict for somebody who say, who, who claims their parents are dead or they don't know their parents or the parents are not working Hence, the parents are working, but the person is fighting to get education so that they can, you know, uh, chase their aspirations. 
maybe an un- unpopular opinion, but I do feel that it needs to be factored into the the broader understanding or broader definition of what constitutes academic dishonesty. Mm-hmm. I think we discussed br- briefly just just before we started this this uh, conversation was that that um, universities are supposed to inculcate values, ethical values, and if we're already entering a university environment on unethical behaviour, it's already setting a bad precedent. And it's really going to, it's pushing us towards a very teetering edge now. I mean, we can just see what what West South Africa finds itself right now. It's in turmoil. You know, we might downplay it a bit, but um, I hear now News 24 recently published an article that we might be facing July unrest 2.0. Um, should uh, Jacob Zuma be arrested again? All right. Um, yeah. yeah. So a little bit... Um, so do you understand that it, it, it's it's really filtering over? So it's got this carryover effect. And I think we just need to, basically, we need to take the moral standpoint and say, what is dishonest behavior is dishonest behavior. What's honest behavior is honest behavior. Mm-hmm. And we need to strongly, I think we need to stand by that. Um, and I think you're right that maybe the definition or our understanding of what constitutes academic dishonesty should be brought into encompass a, a larger scope of activities such as lying about the uh, status of parents mm-hmm. um, I don't know maybe that's a bit of a hard a hardball stance but yeah I, I mean it, it's just me just rambling I'm not I'm not an expert in academic dishonesty so to say but I would have loved to sort of hear what your take is on that because I'm pretty sure at the same time if it doesn't stretch out to that um probably it might also be sort of helping us as academics to know exactly how to deal with what concerns me or else we'll, we'll put a lot of burden to to people if i come as a lecturer and i know someone from my community and the person claims that you know they don't have parents but i know they've got parents are you going to put a burden on me as a lecturer to now start reporting on that when my duty to be in the institution is to basically teach sociology and also teaching sociology doesn't mean therefore that I have to abandon, you know, my societal building skills where I can teach someone just ethical values. The geology of roles for a lecturer. Do we do we then do we completely uh can we disassociate the lecturer from their role of apologies from their role of being uh, delivering the content? And then their responsibility, like you said, the, the responsibility to society. Um, and I think that's, yeah. I don't know if that falls down onto personality types or is it? Uh, <laughs> it's it's a complex one. Um, I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes mm-hmm. even, even academics, some of them, they're tired of the state of, you know, uh, neoliberal higher education today, right? Uh, and some of them, their silence might be a way of... Um, a protest towards you know the way in which uh neoliberal capitalism would want sort of to sort of punish people who are poor so at the same time as far as one might say i want to uphold ethical principles but there's a lot of academics who came out in numbers in 2015 2016 in support of student protests fees must fall so do you really think those who are leaning who are left leaning in support of fees must fall so to say might feel like i have to report to the university that this student's parents are alive they're not dead 
Um, do you presume that they wouldn't, the, the left-leaning uh, academics? I, I, I presume they wouldn't. They wouldn't report this year. Um, <laughs> what I, do you I think? I would have to disagree. Okay. I would have to disagree because um, I, um, I, I, I don't see why the political standpoint of a of uh, of an individual would would impact on their uh, their ethical principles or their moral that or their or their uh, moral grounding. Um, I myself am um, all moderate anarchism, um, so I have no political standpoint, but I would still. Uh, report a student that has uh, committed academic dishonesty. Uh, I understand that maybe that um, in that a neoliberal that that left leaning academics working for for a neoliberal higher education institution would likely not be as compliant with the authoritative structures within an institution, or not want to be. Uh, but I think this goes beyond that, right? I think that it's it's a matter of it's really impeding on their uh, ability to do work, right? To engage in labour, because if I'm uh, if I hand out, let's say let's say I'm a left leading academic, and I hand out a hundred exams or a hundred semester tests for a student to write, and out of those hundred, fifty have cheated, and the result is that I've got. 60% distinctions. That's not representative of me doing my labor adequately, right? That means I'm sending people into the workplace without um, an, uh, a true understanding of what it is that they covered in my course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm actually doing a disservice to the country, you know, whatever your political standpoint is, you know? Yeah, but remember, if, sorry, if I may jump in, your question was, do I presume they would? Um, it wasn't what should they. What should they do? Uh, so mm. I totally, I totally agree with you that every every employee should report, should blow the whistle even on their students. I totally agree with you. But the mm. question is, given the extent to which even a lot of academics today are, are tired of the neoliberal, you, you know, university, the bullying that comes from neoliberal university. <clears throat> Sorry, I know a couple of institutions where even a lot of academics are resigning now because they're this whole aspect of giving more power to administrators and intellectuals or academics themselves is something they never, you know, envisioned or, mm -hmm. or prepared for in their career. So, and same way, as I said, in, in the context of fees must fall, the, the, the knowledge that you were using now in terms of, you know, some students coping and whatnot and failing in class, that, that has something which has a direct, has a direct implication on you as a lecturer. And in, in, in the neoliberal university, it can affect your bonus, it can affect your salary, it can affect too many things in case students are failing, right? Uh, and part of why students are failing might be checked on, you know, the lectures reviews that students have to sort of write at the end of every semester and so on and so forth. But in this particular case, uh, I wanted to sort of, I, I was responding to it, focused a lot on, let's say, fees must fall. What do I presume? I presume that many left-leaning scholars who know that some students are lying because they are fed up of neoliberal higher education and the way in which the place has become so polarized, they might not. Mm -hmm. I'm using that to make the argument that they, that they might not. 
feel that you are right, that you would be right, that they might not report. Um, but are we talking just about uh, in, in cases of, uh, like the example that you listed, uh, being deceptive about the status of their parents? Yeah, particularly but that. Not, uh, particularly particularly that, that. Okay, but so not, not inclusive. But not inclusive of not inclusive of what happens in the classroom that can put my job on the line. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right in that case. That oh, I presume I would like to see so maybe a study needs to be conducted that examines that, um, and it would be have to be a uniquely South African study because I feel that the Fisma, the case of Fismos Falls is a unique uniquely South African case. Yeah. Yeah, as well. So, uh, but I also feel that there's a need to to also detach academic dishonesty from fees must fall. Okay. Um, I don't think I don't feel there was anything particularly uh, corrupt about fees must fall. Okay. Um, I don't think that I don't think it was a wrongdoing behavior. No, no, no the, thing, the, the, thing, the thing, the thing, about the fees must fall that I was actually bringing was not necessarily the movement in itself, but by the fact that fees must fall speaks of students who are not able to afford their studies, right? Therefore, because mm -hmm. they're not able to afford their studies, instead of then me having my parents having to pay for my studies, how about I become uh, sort of creative in quotation marks and you know make submissions to Nestos to say I do not know my parents or my parents are are uh, 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 not having any sort of income, you know, so that I can get money from Nesbos. So if if I'm a more of a leftist and who believed in, you know, the principles of Fismas Fall, and I see that a student sort of is studying through Nesbos, and I find that the student is studying through Nesbos, the financial aid scheme, but this student claimed that um, the parents are dead, but I want to find that the parents are actually not dead. What are the chances, therefore, that I would want to go and say, no, this person's parents are alive, but at the same time, I believe in the principles of Fees Must Fall. Um, I mean, it might fall in a different way because someone who might also, because I don't want to paint left academics bad to say they are not honest. That's not what I'm trying to say. Because at the same time, there might be some who are left academics who might say, but, you know, to a student, they might say, you're lying. Your parents are alive. There's other students who really have the deep need. Don't don't try to take center space, you know. Mm. So I'm not I'm not in any way trying to paint left scholarship, you know, scholars in a bad way. I think that that what you what you're saying is very important because it further complicates the matter and that actually forces me to backtrack. Uh, because as we started this conversation, that we had a, a much narrower a much narrower definition or, or understanding of the behaviors that constitute academic dishonesty, mm -hmm. and through our discussion we were able to maybe expand those behaviors. So to behaviors such as, you know, being deceptive about one's the status of one's parents, which may be not very sociological of me, but we would then need to use that more constricting definition as we had mm -hmm. of what constitutes academic dishonesty is that maybe we shouldn't brought up. And, and my reason is particularly the South African context. So maybe we should really just limit it to understanding it as as behaviors of of or any form of behavior that that contravenes the submission, yeah, contravenes the legitimate submission. So I think for South African purposes now, because you present a strong argument, an argument that is valid, um, you had swayed me in both directions. <laughs> um, 
and maybe for South Africa, because of the specificity of our, of, of, of our context, is that we should really uh, use, understand academic dishonesty as academic dishonesty, something that's relating to Marx. Okay. And these other dishonesties, I suppose they're more related to fraud, what one could call just ordinary fraud. So if you look at your work, then what are, what are the reasons for students not to to blow the whistle on their on their colleagues or fellow friends? There's there's quite a few reasons as to why they don't peer report. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the first of which would be that those students that aren't peer reporting might have a, a lower degree of general honesty themselves. They might have a lower degree of academic honesty or integrity. Uh, moreover, they might feel that if they report, that their disclosure will fall on deaf ears, so nothing will come of it anyway. They might feel that the transgression was, fourthly, they might feel that the transgression was insignificant in itself. Um, so it's something that doesn't really constitute a major transgression. Uh, fifth is that they might uh, not identify with the institution and with the policies and the rules of that institution, hence that they have no, there's no congruency between the individual and and what the institution considers ethical behavior. And they feel that they don't have to report on that. And then sixth, and I think I left it for the last on purpose, and I feel that it's the most important because we've seen its importance for all whistleblowers mm-hmm. is uh, fear of reprisals. In academia, the type of reprisals that you know we won't we, we won't see the whistleblowers in whistleblower students face work-related retaliation. They won't face retaliatory lawfare, but what they will face is most likely uh, social retaliation that comes in the form of things such as ostracization, labeling, um, and so on and so forth. And, and you know, in some cases, in, in, in exempt cases, there might be incidents of physical retaliation. Mm-hmm. And I suppose this is a big deal. And uh, if you think of yourself as a university student, you don't want to be on the societal cusp. Yeah. You don't want to be the outsider because it's difficult. It's already difficult to integrate into university. I remember how difficult my first year was. I came as like an outsider from, you know, already with a migrant name and surname, but I came from a town way outside of Johannesburg. Uh, And I had no other peers because nobody from the town of Springs goes to university. So I had no friends. It was difficult for me to to integrate in a Johannesburg-like environment, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, you can blow the whistle, and then you're further labeled as a stitch. Yes. Uh, I know you wanted to use the term impimpy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask about which that. Is yeah. a, mm, which is, I think, a very important term. That um, I mean, uh, uh, the term itself comes from, uh, is it Osa? Is it Zulu and English? Yeah, it's and it was used. Yeah. Uh, in Gunia. Okay. So it's an informal, well, what, what it means is, I mean, for I suppose for the listener, it's it's a term uh, that originated in the anti-apartheid struggle that was used to label uh, people as police informers or police collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, and labeling in itself is negative. Yeah. Um, so I suppose it embeds itself there. So I don't know if students are using the term in Pimpi, uh, but they're definitely using uh, terms such as rat, snitch. Oh, they do. Uh, tittle tail. Right. Mm. 
Is there any links so far with academic dis- from uh, links between academic dishonesty and just one's social life in general, as far as you you you're concerned? Uh, whether you um, know the proclivity, whether being dishonest and frequently dishonest in my academics has a high proclivity of me being just a dishonest human being in, in life in general, and in a workplace, yeah, that's definitely and relationship, yeah. Apologies, sorry, mean to cut you off. Um, there's definite correlations. Um, there's correlations between um, one's general honesty. So, as you said, in, in general social life. So, what 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 data indicates to us is that people that are more likely to go and steal a pen or are fine with like stealing a pen from an employer or an office or somewhere, people that are more likely to bribe a police police officer. Uh, people that are more likely to not pay a TV license <laughs> right. are, are more likely to commit academic dishonesty. Um, so there's a definite correlation that also trans that likelihood of, of, or, or that, or that tendency to perpetually commit academic dishonesty uh-huh. then transfers itself to um, your broader social life, to your post academic employment, to, uh, your relationships, let's say with partners, you might engage in cheating behaviors, uh, but there are definite correlations. A couple of researchers have commented on that and this paper as well was able to establish that right. there are correlations between the two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll be keen to sort of um, have a chat with you in the near future about, you know, uh, whistleblowing more on, on, on your PhD level because today we're more focused on your um, master's level. Because I'd love to hear what other more fascinating things you're getting, um, or even more in the future, talk maybe about what one might call even the death of the academy. Because as we're speaking about academic dishonesty, there's a number of things that we're sort of not touching on. You know, the case of uh, UCT that came out recently, where a PhD student who's said to have plagiarized um, was actually fighting the former, now former uh, vice chancellor of UCT, Professor Mamakhati Paking. Uh, with the registrar to sort of have the student being conferred with a PhD. But I mean, external examiners have found that the PhD has got plagiarism. So there's also that level of academic dishonesty that I would have loved to sort of hear from you. And and also more even in terms of scholars themselves, the work in which we publish, there's a lot of body of work that goes out there that has got a lot of dishonesties, a lot of things being pub- published uh, from, you know, medicine, um, uh data fabrication and so on and so forth what that means you know in in the broader scheme of things in terms of you know the academy in itself and and whether are we still producing work that has you know validity and reliability or even our work has sort of moved more from just using science towards activism and and how that sort of jeopardizes you know the scholarship so to say and not to mention uh, the phenomenon of self plagiarism yep yep that too. If I can throw this as 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 a last question, and then you'll maybe give us your parting short. Um, ChatGPT is is the in thing now in universities. How uh, have you ever worked? To what extent would you say you've worked with it or worked with uh, student assignments that you know the students have used ChatGPT? And do you have any concerns about it and the way it might sort of affect the quality of work and then in the future? I'm I'm not knowledgeable enough to to adequately comment on ChatGPT. I'm not really informed. I haven't worked with ChatGPT myself. I wouldn't know if I've been exposed to students' assignments. 
mm-hmm. coming from ChatGPT. But I, I do think that it's 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 a it's a major concern. Mm-hmm. I think it's taking away from it's taking away from students' ability to construct their own arguments, to 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 formulate their own uh, own work. You know, not AI assisted work. Yeah. Um, although I understand that there are counter arguments that it, that 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 people are using it to strengthen their own uh, work, so they might just copy paste in a paragraph into ChatGPT and then it, it rephrases it better. But um, I, I personally, I am concerned. But I mean, I, I can't give you any 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 empirical evidence as to why I'm concerned about uh, ChatGPT. I just think it's maybe a fast track way. Are we going to see people that are you know? Uh, that are otherwise not such strong academics that aren't publishing or haven't been publishing anything that are now publishing three to four articles a year possibly. because of chat GPT. Possibly. Yeah. And what does it, and what does it do to someone like me that doesn't, uh, I'm not that tech tech savvy, you know, and um, I, I haven't touched chat GPT yet. And what does it do something to me? Who's, you know, struggling to do two articles a year. Yeah. And, um, so it's putting me at a, at a, or people like myself at an unfair disadvantage. Um, and it, you know, my own thing is, you know, I'm immediately saying, oh, well, that's dishonest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I understand, you know, just like, um, just like the wheel was an invention, this too is a, is, is a, is a probably a necessary invention. Uh, you know, there might be very good yield from this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, do you remember how concerned we were when the internet popped up? What the concerns regarding the internet were? Yeah. And then the mass use of mass use of uh, technologies when we entered university. You know, everybody coming in with laptops and tablets, and, you know. But imagine now having to go and type out your. I know my supervisor. She wrote her PhD. My primary supervisor. She wrote her PhD on a typewriter, and every time there was a mistake, you discard that paper and you have to retype that entire page. I mean, could you imagine? Having to do that now. Oh, she's gonna pull her. PhD. She's gonna pull her out seeing <laughs> and, and, <laughs> assessments from students today, uh, especially and, with and, ChatGPT. Yeah, go on. And, and what I'm saying is, imagine having to do a um, us having to uh, having to have had to write our PhD like that now. Could you imagine that? I wouldn't be able to. So maybe the maybe. Um, ChatGPT is an, a necessary innovation. Maybe that's something like using Microsoft Word was versus using a typewriter. Maybe that's the next step Probably. in evolution. My only fear, you know, my only fear is, you know, uh, will people like you and I then become redundant? If we don't know tech, probably yes. Mm. So it's about time we start practicing tech. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's really great. Yeah. Hearing, hearing from you, uh, um, Ugi. Have you got any 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 parting shots for us? Um, uh, nothing, nothing. If 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 I could, if I could, um, if if I could just uh, do a bit of uh, posturing here, is that um, uh, uh, just to highlight to people that that uh, South African whistleblowers find themselves in a very dire situation right now. And that there's a need to revise uh, whistleblowing policy in South Africa, and that there's a big push. So I would just like to drive people's attention towards that because these people are people that have fought for South Africa's democracy and really find themselves in a bad point. And how do I relate this to academic dishonesty? 
because many of these people would have blown the whistle on academic dishonesty or had have blown the whistle on academic dishonesty and they just continued as morally cusp. So that's the only little bit of posturing that I want to put out there, just to drive your attention to what South African whistleblowers and a need to reform policy for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to sort of touch a lot on your PhD because I know that that's where much of your passion is in terms of whistleblowing. But so far, because I haven't really touched base with you as to how much work you've already published in terms of your PhD. So I didn't want to uh, compromise that at this moment, that information. But if you've got anything published so far in terms of whistleblowing, where can people get access to it? And what's the title of the papers if you have i have a uh i have a co-authored paper that uh is available on maynooth uh and it's on whistleblowing support structures for south african whistleblowers and i have some forthcoming papers i should have three coming out soon right um two and then a third next year and i will i will gladly then forward those to you and then you can just circulate them as and when you please i'll be glad to do that and i'll be glad to talk to you soon again about whistleblowing now on a more political level because for now i was more yeah. keen to sort of capture uh academic yeah. dishonesty and whistleblowing on a university student mm-hmm. level but thanks dr Ugi. it's been great having a chat with you and seeing you again. Tony, thank you so much yeah. it was amazing to see you and thank you i'm i'm very honored and happy to have been uh part of your amazing podcast um visions and turns thanks i appreciate your time sir <laughs> thank you so much Tony. thanks visions and tones that was dr Ugi from uh south africa the university of johannesburg in south africa and his work is more central on uh academic dishonesty and uh whistleblowing on his masters but on his phd he's more strong on whistleblowing and looks at the whole political landscape in south africa great work to sort of engage there and we'll catch you next time on our next episode thanks for choosing us and we are out cheers <laughs>